This week, I'm joined by Matt Alderman and John Strand to discuss Microsoft acquiring a company called Blue Talon. Arduino has selected Auth0 as a standardized login for their open source ecosystem. A new code signing solution is released by Venify. ExtraHop issues a warning. And in our second segment, we talk about evaluating security vendors in prep for Black Hat. In the final segment, Charles Thompson, the Senior Director of Product Management at Viavi Solutions, joins us to talk about threat hunting. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Prevention-based tools leave you blind to threats inside your network. By adding network traffic analysis to your SOC, you can find and stop attackers before they make their move. ExtraHop provides complete visibility at enterprise scale. Detect threats 95% faster with machine learning that helps tier one analysts perform like seasoned threat hunters. Visit extrahop.com forward slash security weekly to learn why the SANS Institute calls ExtraHop fast and amazingly thorough. That's extrahop.com forward slash security weekly. Networks are becoming increasingly complex and fragmented, and digital transformation and DevOps are driving an explosion in network connectivity changes. With each new network connection, cyber attackers may gain another opening to breach or traverse the network. At Tufin, they've pioneered a policy-based approach to network security management using automation and analytics. As a result, you can make network changes in minutes instead of days reliably and securely. To learn more about Tufin, the security policy company, go to securityweekly.com forward slash Tufin and sign up for a free evaluation. By the end of 2020, 99% of exploited vulnerabilities will be publicly disclosed and known to IT system admins. The consequences of that fact means the burglar will already be in your house because you left the front door wide open by failing to patch known vulnerabilities. How can you keep the threat actors out? Through cloud-based automation, Automox enables you to slam the door on unpatched OS and third-party vulnerabilities across your entire Windows, Mac, and Linux infrastructure. Take advantage of a free trial with Automox to not only see the vulnerability status of your infrastructure, but do something about it within minutes. Start automating the fundamentals of cyber hygiene at securityweekly.com forward slash Automox. That's securityweekly.com forward slash Automox. Welcome to episode 147 of Enterprise Security Weekly for, is it July 31st today? It is July. I thought it was August 1st. It is July 31st. I'm your host, Paul Asadarian, joined by Matt Alderman and John Strand. Matt, welcome. Happy hump day. Less than a week to Black Hat. That's it. John Strand is here with us. John, welcome. Hello, hello, hello. I'm trying to stay hydrated, doing yoga and all kinds of meditation to get ready for the next week. Is that the secret? Yoga? I don't know. I'm, gonna tr I'm trying new things, Paul. I'm trying new things because it's never, I'm never prepared enough. I hear you. I hear you. Um, we have exciting news about the Security Weekly webcast program. We are now partnered with ISC Squared as an official CPE provider. If you're attending any of our webcasts, you will be receiving one CPE credit per webcast. One and only one. Even if you bribe us, it's still one. Uh, although we, I'd still accept the, the bribe. But register for our upcoming webcast with Zane Lackey of Signal Sciences. Go to securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts. Register for that. Uh, Zane, Matt, and myself will be talking about application security, specifically using our internal application that we uh, have been developing for quite some time now. 
as an example of how you do a build system or how we propose that you do a build system open to feedback and how you would protect that at the various stages of the build including in production so that's going to be a lot of fun uh, as many of you know i've been doing mostly development for the past couple of months in fact we're pushing out a release today yay if you uh, want to check out any of our previous webcasts, go to securityweekly.com uh, forward slash on demand, and you still get credit for those uh, CPE credits. If you're trying to make a big splash at Black Hat this year, do we have a slot available on Paul Security Weekly? I think we have like one or two slots left, and that's it. We're booked. We're booked. We have three slots. All the micro interviews are booked. We have Paul's Security Weekly. Our most downloaded show, ironically enough. Uh, so you you definitely want to go to securityweekly.com forward slash booking and submit your request uh, and, and get on that show while we're at Black Cat because we're recording it live at Black Cat and it's going to be awesome. So on to the security enterprise security news. Where do you guys want to start? Start at the very beginning. All right. Aqua Security has introduced new native or introduces native runtime protection for Pivotal Cloud Foundry. What is Pivotal Cloud Foundry? Not so, so part of them. I actually went through this. Um, one of the things that's really cool about this this little write-up is it starts out like it's going to be another crap. Like, you know, like a lot of the stuff that shows up in Global Security Mag is just written by an intern in marketing who has no idea what they're doing. Yeah, it's like a shortened, a shortened version of the press release, John, that we get from, from it that is. site. It, yeah. it's, a, it's a good site. It's good information, but it's very uh, markety and not a lot of details. But then this one changes. And what uh, it does right in the middle, and I think every single vendor should take note, is they break down in bullet points exactly what it does. So like Aqua Security for PCF has two tiers. For the standard, it'll scan application for vulnerabilities, provision policies and block unauthorized applications, scan and monitor application container artifacts for vulnerabilities, malware, apply host assurance policies. That's straight to the point, clean. Uh, not ambiguous at all. And then they talk about the advanced features as well. So this was a fantastic little write-up. Um, so hats off to Mark Jacob, I think, is the one that put this one together from the press release from Aqua Security because it tells me exactly what this damn thing does. Matt, what um, do you think of Aqua? Yeah, I mean, look, this, they've done this for other platforms. So Pivotal is mm -hmm. uh, the container platform under Pivotal. Aqua's been doing a lot of work with VMware over the uh, last couple of years. Pivotal is a sister company to VMware, part of the old oh, EMC Federation that's okay. now part of Dell. So that's yeah. VMware's container platform. Yes, yep. exactly. Gotcha. So, so this is this makes a lot of sense because mm -hmm. my my prediction is VMware is probably going to buy Aqua Security soon. You know, now yep. that we've seen some movement in the container security space, it's a good right? indicator, we, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, Twistlock got bought by Palo, mm -hmm. Laird Insight got bought by Qualys. I think VMware was waiting for the right time to figure out when yeah. they pull a trigger. And my guess is they'll do something sooner than later. That leaves and, a, a, just a couple of players in the market in for container security that haven't gotten bought out. Uh, Stackrocks being one. And Sysdig, which is and a Sysdig. sponsor on ASW. Yeah. Sysdig yeah. does a lot more than just container security. They do well. They, yeah, I mean, I well, the reason I like Sysdig a lot is because they do a combination of container monitoring, more from an application performance perspective, yeah, and container security, gotcha. which I think is the opportunity. If you're already inside the container and you're looking at security events, you can also be pulling performance metrics and other things in, in an APM type use case. I need that for my so app. I've, I've got a question <laughs> for you on that, Matt. Though, 
whenever you're a company, let's just hypothetically say that Aqua is looking to get purchased, is it better for that company to have a diverse portfolio or to basically have a specialization that's deep in a specific area um, so that you can match the niche that somebody that's looking to purchase you would be looking to fill? Well, I think you have to look at it two, two ways. I think you have to build a strategic relationship to get attraction to be acquired. And in the case of the conversations that VMware and Aqua Security have been having over the years, this is a very relevant integration point because that Pivotal is what VMware is going to use for its container platform. So by going deeper there makes a lot of sense strategically. So it makes it a really easy kind of integration if this acquisition happens. But you can't put all your eggs in one basket, John, as we all know, Mm. because Maybe it's not Microsoft or it's not VMware that makes this acquisition. Mm-hmm. Microsoft also has an investment in Aqua as well from from the early days, or somebody else comes along and, and does this, right? So I think you have to look at strategic relationships and figure out how you integrate tightly. But you you've also got to look at other integrations, and and Aqua is supporting Docker and they're supporting Red Hat and the other container platforms that are out there. So they're not only limiting themselves to one. This is just an enhancement that I think puts them in a better strategic position with VMware. Nice. And there's so much technology to integrate with in the container DevOps space. Just tons, tons. A ton, yeah. You want to talk about prolifer- pr- proliferation of tools. <laughs> oh my <laughs> DevOps God. DevOps is, it, it's, well, it's getting crazy. <laughs> and just development in general today. Like I know, John, we've had conversations like, is it Angular? Is it Angular 2? Is it like, what? what is it, right? And then in well, the automation, there's Jenkins and Jack was well, telling me about a, another one uh, the other day, right? I, there's just and then you can like you can type. build your own stuff too, right? Like for mm-hmm. testing, you can use Selenium and build your own testing scripts. So you got to integrate with a lot of different technologies and integrate with a lot of different customizations, perhaps. And that complexity is just insane. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just absolutely insane. Welcome to my world, right? <laughs> We are using Jenkins better, right now, but bet, better that changes. That, well, that's the other thing, too, is once you modularize everything uh, and even deploy to one platform, you can take all your modules, some of your modules, swap them out, or take a subset of them and put them on a different platform, right? And build a new application based on that foundation. So I think a lot of yeah. these companies are going to have a, a lot of different integrations. Well, and I think that can jump us to another story with Sonatype um, yeah. Golang integration. Um, and this is definitely a play specifically into like Google cloud compute, which is weird. I didn't see this. I didn't see Google cloud compute mentioned Mm -hmm. in this article, which I think was really something they overlooked. Um, but if you're looking at, um, like Lambda, uh, predominantly Python based, uh, for AWS, Golang is really what Google, because Google supports that particular language. Um, so yeah, you're going to see, just like you said, there's more support for different types of languages and frameworks uh, that are being thrown, expect, thrown into the mix, especially on the cloud side and automation and trying to monitor all that. That's one of my main concerns. And I keep bringing this up in the show. And whenever we're looking at all these cloud security vendors, I see this huge discrepancy between what they're actually doing and what the actual attacks really look like. And I think it's going to take a while for them to mature to get to the point where they work at the level that they say, just because of that complexity as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah, too bad you weren't with us last week because we had Michael Aiello on from Google Cloud mm-hmm. Platform. And we talked about the shared oh, responsibility nice. model mm-hmm. and the different tiers. And this ties into the whole action item that's on my plate around cloud security. So we'll get there. But uh, yeah, I agree a- with you, John, right? <laughs> there is probably more that needs to be done there. 
what you didn't get that task done the the week before black hat and defcon what are you doing with your spare time so. selling selling <laughs> <laughs> but for those of you that are listening to the show what we were talking about a couple of episodes back is what does a complete cloud security like package look like uh from end to end and that was something that matt i, th- I don't know if you volunteered or got volunteered for that one uh it was a combination of both but don't worry i, I it is on my task list to do fantastic and is go in the the kind of back end of many applications today Oh, dear God, Go is showing up in everywhere. Everywhere, uh, right? So, yeah, for a little bit of background on Go, Go, uh, Google got a whole bunch of the original developers of C together mm. and said, if you were going to create C from scratch today, what would you do different? And they incorporated a lot of concepts of uh, like, like Python, some from Java, but they basically um, said this is their overall archetype on what they would do. Multi-threading would be built in. It would compile mm-hmm. right before it would execute. Uh, you could set up clustering very easily right out of the box. And Google basically gave them a blank check mm-hmm. uh, to do it. So it's very easy to develop in, very similar to Python. It's actually not similar from a syntax perspective to Python, but it's easy, like Python, gotcha. uh, to write highly functional code. And it's about 85 to 90% as fast as written in C. Yep. Uh, so that's the advantage of using Golang. Gotcha. I think you'd find it in the back ends of many like security oh, yeah. solutions today. Oh, we use it heavily just because of the analysis that we're doing. Uh, we we use it all the time at, uh, for active countermeasures. It's awesome. Uh, let's see. Uh, where do we want to go from here? Uh, Arduino has uh, selected Auth0 as a standardized login for the open source I ecosystem. This was cool. Yeah, I think we I kind of sometimes underestimate the technologies that have to be adopted by open source uh, projects. Mm-hmm. We're covering like a, a pro FTP vulnerability. And I'm like, who the hell's still using pro FTP? Like I remember <laughs> that back in the day being really vulnerable. And the article had like one point and it's like, by the way, when you create multiple mirrors as part of an open source project or open source, you know, Linux distro, open uh, FTP, pro FTPD rather, is the FTP daemon behind a lot of those, yep. which is interesting. And, and they were rolling their own before, so taking a commercial standard product and embedding it in yeah. you know, probably makes a lot of sense for them because they don't have to manage their own identity access management solution as part of their right. ecosystem, and which it's is so, It's so critical to open source, larger, especially open source projects that have so many contributors. And how do you validate that this contributor is actually the contributor, that their account has not been taken over, that someone hasn't, you know, swiped their password somewhere and done password mm-hmm. spraying or whatever to gain access to their account. Because essentially, if you can backdoor a popular uh, open source project of any kind, that's a great way to distribute your uh, malware. And that ties into this beautiful Venify story about new code signing solution. Yeah, you that's and, and that's on the runtime side, right? I mean... If well, I, it, so if I if I can take over a developer's credentials, I can sign the mm-hmm. code as them, and everything's good, right? So these well, are, I mean, they are related problems, Matt, in in the chain, right? But you have to make sure the developer is really who they say they are, and no one's impersonating them. And then when you sign the code, whatever's running the code has to check the signature to make sure it. it, it so it's a it's a chain of well, events. I, but I, but I think the main problem that they're trying to address is if you go to any development shops, um, you run into a situation where a whole bunch of different development groups have their own code signing certificates. Yep. And there's no centralization. There's no management of those code signing certificates. And they're all valid for that company. So I'll just use one case example. Uh, the Bit9 attack a long time ago 
was where Bit9 had a code signing certificate that they could sign their binaries that was trusted by Bit9, and they were compromised, and the attackers stole that code signing certificate. So the underlying point is the more code signing certificates you have Mm -hmm. running ad hoc in your environment, the more it opens up this attack surface. So for developing kind of a centralized code signing certificate ability for large development shops, so you can have some control and visibility into that is yep. huge. Yep. And this is one Not of those problems. Not just that, problems. but re- I think response is really yeah. important to know that, hey, oh, absolutely. one of our certificates is compromised. Let's revoke that immediately and, and reissue new ones, right? Absolutely. And then being able to do that quickly is yeah. very, very hard for most shops. So this is a cool thing because it's a problem I don't think a lot of people in security understand is a problem. And I also think a lot of development shops kind of felt it was a pain in the ass, but they never really looked yeah. at it as a problem. So this is a beautiful solution for that problem of code signing certificate creep in organizations. Yeah, we talked about ephemeral certificates on ASW on Monday. And you know, one of the challenges managing all these certificates, right? And if you can centralize that get visibility in to all these different certificates you're issuing, I think it just helps make it easier for the developers to use it, know what's going on, have uh, the ability to revoke certificates that are bad, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is a great thing from a management perspective because that's where it gets really hard, I think, for a lot of development shops. And I'm trying to be better, you know, whenever I'm giving webcasts or on shows like this. So if you're somebody that's working in a shop and you want to implement this, how do you get management to move? And I think the examples would be, um, as I mentioned, the Bit9 example and then also Duke. Uh, is the malware that specifically would sit on systems to steal code signing certificates and then get off of those systems. So there's been a number of different targeted level attacks that were designed at stealing code certificates. So when you're talking to management, here's a solution to find the problem as it exists, but then also giving some historical context helps you explain things to management as well. Um, I wanted to discuss ExtraHop's advisory about phoning home. And certainly, I think they're in a perfect position to be able to observe this behavior so I can kind of like gather where it comes from. I mean, they're looking at all the traffic, right? And it sounds like they're observing certain types of software essentially phoning home. What And what is its purpose? How do you detect it? Uh, I thought that was interesting. So it's interesting because we, a lot of... Sorry, John. I, oh, I was going to just, just say quickly. It's interesting because a lot of security solutions use a phone home capability. Mm-hmm. It's how they get out of the firewall and up to the cloud solution mm-hmm. to get data up there, right? And if you think about a lot of the solutions that are out there, they use phone home. The question is, what's in that phone home traffic, which is the interesting part of this advisory is how much of private data or other data that, that shouldn't be leaving is actually going out that channel? So, so let's go through some examples. Um, so these are examples that we've actually identified in a number of our customers over the past year. Um, TeamViewer, I think, would be mm-hmm. an excellent example. Uh, a lot of organizations will buy things like radiology machines. And then the company that manages those machines, they will actually go through and um, they will have remote access through software like TeamViewer. Um, so we were able to find this in a couple of hospitals. TeamViewer connections that were leaving, they were like, holy crap, that's weird. Looked into it, found out it was a vendor. And then you had that team viewer hack. Uh, I can't remember exactly when the team viewer hack was. This was this year. So team viewer was compromised, and I think it was May is whenever this showed up that the, comp, uh, the ch- uh, Chinese had access since 2016. So anybody that was using team viewer for remote management was compromised. Another one was uh, Nuance. Um, Nuance was using uh, it's like Dragon. Nuance bought Dragon Naturally Speaking software, wow. and they That's had the ability. For, yeah, right. 
So a lot of hospitals and a lot of organizations still use that heavily. Mm -hmm. But if you had trouble with the software, you could enable remote management um, in the Nuance software, and then it would load, I want to say, like, like log me in. So or go yeah, to my which, PC type software. Yeah, yeah, okay. And if you enabled that for troubleshooting, you could disable it, but the vast majority of hospitals forgot to shut it off. So the nuance compromise coming back through was something like, I think that it was 45,000 or 50,000 uh, patient, patient records were um, known to be compromised specifically from that. Yeah, I was going to say a, a doctor yeah. using that for dictation is likely speaking yeah. about a patient's health record, right? Yep. So these are just a handful of examples of the things that we have discovered and embedded devices. You have uh, TVs, you have all these different things. And uh, we just got done with the carbon monoxide detector, I think. James was working on that. He's behind me. And as soon as it fired up, it phoned home immediately. So we have lots of examples to see this. And I don't know exactly what to call this because it's not quite vendor supply chain security management. Um, it needs a better name. And that's yeah. something we've been struggling with. Now, John, you've got some, uh, and I wanted to ask you this off air, but I'll ask it on air. Um, when you go in and do a test, in fact, you and I talked about doing this years ago. And I want to see where you're at with so you, you drop some a piece of software inside the company's network, and then you tell it to phone home, and it tries all the different ways to, to phone home. It, do you guys have yep. like a software suite that, that does that? Yeah, absolutely. So if you have an internal IP address that communicates to an external IP address and it attempts multiple protocols and multiple ports, mm -hmm. um, AI Hunter freaks out on that mm -hmm. right away. Gotcha. Um, you should see that connection go through on a single port. You'll run into some changes with Quick Protocol and SCTP. Um, those are a bit different. But yeah, if you have an internal system that's trying to communicate outbound across multiple different protocols, um, AI Hunter is like, this is, you know, you, you've tried 23 different ports to get out of this environment. It's time to let you let somebody know immediately if there's shenanigans at play. And uh, you, do you guys deploy code to like a customer to test that and test the detection? So we've got, well, two things. Um, yes, absolutely. We actually have a full box we can send to prospective mm -hmm. customers. The big thing that we've been doing quite a bit, and this is happening this week on an incident that we're working on in Bangkok, is uh, we're, we're doing AI Hunter, we're running it, and uh, Egypt is working the pen test. Yep. And we find this back door, and we're like, Egypt, is this you? And he's like, yes, that's me. Um, is this you? Yes, that, that's me as well. So we're testing a lot of our customers while we're doing mm -hmm. the forensics on it. So yeah, that's we're awesome. constantly testing and reevaluating that all time, all the time with uh, Cobalt Strikes, um, uh, aggressor scripts and all the different types of C2 okay. profiles. So yeah, there. so there are there's tools that exist uh, to test that. Yep. So if you're looking commercial, it. you would want to look at Scythe. Um, yep. Scythe is one that has multiple different C2 profiles, uh, CyberXM. And um, uh, if you want to go open source, you can do Caldera. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a number of different tools that will emulate those various profiles. But Cobalt Strike is probably, from a pen tester's perspective, the most mm -hmm. flexible as far as what you can do. Mm. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, for, for those looking to test that. <clears throat> um, let's see. A checkpoint has introduced two new security gateways. I think we covered oh, this last week. We Unless did. this is two more new gateways on top of the last two. I'm not quite sure. Oh, no, I think you're it's right. It's doing one terabyte of threat prevention. Did you see that? The, the, uh, the what is it? The 16,000 base. Um, the appliance provides flexibility, tailored network storage, power supply configurations, over a terabyte per second of threat prevention. Holy Up to crap. 64 networking interfaces. What? It's crazy. <laughs> crazy. Got to keep the and base those, alive, man. 
those cards are not cheap. Like you're no. looking at very expensive cards that can run into terabit per second. Mm-hmm. So uh, Microsoft has acquired Blue Talon, which is described as a cross-platform data access control solution provider uh, for an undisclosed uh, amount. I I went to their website and I get what they say. You know, solutions provider, undisclosed data protection. I still don't know what the hell they do. Are they cloud-based? Are they on-prem? Uh, are they both? Uh, it's kind well, of they're, one they're, of those horrible websites. Next generation of cloud data governance. Oh, okay. That's what it says. Yeah, it, it gets into some of the specifics around setting up uh, different uh, set of policies for uh, different database structures, right? So it, it allows you to monitor SQL, NoSQL, big data store, set policies, and look for mm-hmm. potential violations from a data governance perspective. I'm assuming it can run anywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that for a fact. Um, but the one line in here that was interesting is it says the IP and talent acquired from Blue Talent. Yep. So that always flags this really interesting. Was this yep. an aqua hire? <laughs> Right? Or did they mm-hmm. actually buy Blue Hexagon, which is maybe why it's an undisclosed uh, amount of money? I'm just yeah. it was kind of a weird sentence. Kind of sounds like Microsoft bought them to integrate with uh, Azure. Yes, they they definitely did. It's part of the Azure which data governance. They desperately group. need. God, they need that so bad. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's a good move for Microsoft from a data governance, data protection perspective in the cloud. I think this is probably a well, really good move for them if they can do a better job of giving tools to customers to control and manage their data in the cloud. Hallelujah, brother. Well, and Microsoft is light years ahead of like Google and Amazon in this respect. Um, as far as you know, tying into Active Directory, Azure Active Directory, doing user behavioral analytics, looking at actual attacks and how those attacks work. Um, and I think that kind of shows their approach, right? They kind of did slow and steady uh, for developing a cloud platform that could integrate with enterprises. And uh, this is just a good, a good approach, uh, a good high, a good purchase for that. But yeah, trust me, Microsoft is much, much, much better than Amazon and Google, whose whole approach seems to be, yeah, you all are on your own. Uh, Carbon Black uh, is proposed as updates to a cybersecurity kill chain model to help defenders stay ahead of modern attacks. I mean, yeah, is this really just stitching together the MITRE attack framework? Yeah. Kind of, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the framework is a big matrix of stuff, and I can see you, well, you combine multiple of those together to get, air quotes, kill chains, right? Or attack chains, I, or whatever you I'm, want I'm gonna, to call it. I'm going to recommend Carbon Black. Just, I'm going to talk to them directly right in the camera right now. Carbon Black, I hate cyber kill chain as well. I mean, it, trademarking basically what is the basics of computer security is insane. I've been fighting it for a long, long, long time. I haven't won. So I'm recommending to you, Carbon Black, let it go. <laughs> You're not going to beat the cyber kill chain. You're not going to undo the cyber kill chain. It's in books all over the place. People what, have been it, learning but, it since. It, so since who came preschool. up with the who came up with the That's cyber? Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin. Oh, yeah. So okay. basically, Paul, I'll boil it down. They, ba- you know, how 504 is here's an attack, here's the defense, here's an attack, yeah. here's the defense. Yeah. They basically took ripped off 504 mm-hmm. and went through all the different attack techniques for different phases, and then they. Gave it a name, a cool name, by the way. Cyber Kill Chain was That's awesome. That's a cool name. And, I agree. And then mm-hmm. trademarked it, and that was that. I got you. Okay. Yep. So I, that's exactly what I wanted from you, John. I was curious <sighs> on your thoughts on this one, is, um, and, and you gave them to us very clearly, so thank you. Yeah, so give up, Carbon Black. Go with the flow. I am now part of the Cyber Kill Chain army. Yeah. 
Perimeter 81 and Sentinel-1 provide a unified network and endpoint security. Perimeter 81 is touted as a pioneer in zero-trust software-defined network access, and Sentinel-1 is the autonomous endpoint protection company. We have lots of pioneers in zero-trust networking. Yep. Just so you know. Because it's new. And yeah, it's new, and everybody's trying to be the pioneer in well, it. Well, they're touting so. it as new. I'm sure we could find a paper back in the 60s or 70s that <laughs> basically models zero trust. That's yeah, actually the premise of my keynote that I'll be giving later this year, is that nothing's <laughs> truly like innovative or unique. It borrows from something just, from the past. You can just call it Marcus Ranum already did it. Yeah. Yeah, it actually is. Zero trust is kind of a page right out of Marcus Random's brain, yeah. really. Yeah. You're right, John. Well, so, so this is a, a networking vendor and an endpoint vendor coming together to create unified network and endpoint security just as we continue to abstract the network and the endpoint. Uh, well, but look, th they're absolutely right. This is where it's going. I think they have some statistics like 70, or it is, if mobile workers will make up 75% of the U.S. workforce uh, worldwide mm -hmm. by 2020. Um, the... The issue is your concept of an Active Directory internal environment, a DMZ and a firewall, and then you set up all of your access, maybe have a VPN coming into it, is, is going away mm -hmm. very quickly. Uh, Paul, we talked it's about gone. this on episode yeah. like 500 or something like that in Security Weekly years ago. And we're now entering into the endpoint now is the edge of the network. It's all over the place. And how are organizations going to deal with that? And I used to think zero trust was just a total buzzword, dug into it a little bit deeper. And that's specifically what they're talking about is you can't trust the network you're on. You can't have applications that have transitive trust amongst each other. Mm -hmm. You get into single sign-on, that gets into some nightmares whenever you're dealing with uh, zero trust. So it is absolutely a thing. Um, but I don't necessarily know how it plays specifically with these two products, I guess. Well, um, and it's agree. interesting. I, if firewalls were the wrong way to control security around users and applications that needed to talk and exchange data, right? To pull yeah. a page from Matt's app user data, right? And I think it's exciting because that's exactly where we're going, right? Is relying less on those network controls and more on the user application and data controls. Yep. Yeah, and so to the point, John, is... You're right. Is the network the right place to do this? Is the endpoint the right place to do this? Or is it really the right place to do this at the user and the application layer, which is where we're going to see the proliferation continue to happen outside of the normal network? And, and that's where I think um, I would be more excited if this were a user and an app player talking yeah. about this than a network and an endpoint player. Yeah, or even well, a cloud play but, too, because your controls around applications in the cloud are really you do apply network controls, but they're basically tailored and uh, for the application. Mm -hmm. And Perimeter eighty one does a lot of that. Just to be completely honest, mm -hmm. um, they do. I mean, what they're talking about, what they're doing is awesome. We don't want to rip out their product at all. But I think predominantly, when we're moving forward to zero trust, everything right now is a science experiment. Um, no one has the solution. We're all trying different things. And when we're trying different things, does the technology work and will organizations be willing to adopt that technology? Um, those are two big questions that we have to work through. Um, so this is a much larger issue than just these two vendors, but this is where everything is going. And that's why I keep coming back to, you know, the problems that we have with cloud security and zero trust moving forward. And what does that actually look like over the next five years? I honestly don't know. Sweet. Well, that will conclude the Enterprise News segment for the show. Stay tuned. We're going to talk about security vendors coming up next. 
Security teams need network data to threat hunt and resolve incidents, but find that PCAP is often too much data and NetFlow isn't enough. Corelight was founded by the creators of Zeek, formerly Bro, and its sensors provide just the right amount of data, transforming raw traffic into comprehensive logs, extracted files, and custom insights so analysts can make fast sense of traffic and move the speed of attack. To find out why Corelight is your best next move in security, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Corelight. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. The greatest threat to businesses today isn't the outsider trying to get in. It's the people you trust, the ones who already have the keys, your employees, contractors, and privileged users. 60% of online attacks are carried out by insiders. To stop these insider threats, you need to see what users are doing before an incident occurs. Observe it enables security teams to detect risky user activity, investigate incidents in minutes, and effectively respond. Get your free trial at observeit.com forward slash security weekly. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. Uh, we're talking about evaluating security vendors. I do have an announcement. Uh, my teleprompter is not working. Uh, but some of you have told us you're overwhelmed by the amount of content we distribute. To get on our listener interest list, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Not only subscribe to all of our shows, but also join a list that will eventually give you access to a system where you you will receive notifications about content that we publish that is within your interests so and now today we're much closer to that because we released a new version of our software uh and uh, we'll be releasing a new uh updated version of our website uh the first one completely free to everyone will let you sort and filter by categories and tags and topics and shows uh, so you can find things you're interested in. And then uh, after that, we'll build another website where you register, tell us a little bit about what you're interested in and receive notifications. How about that? Can't awesome. wait. I think that was it for that announcement. Yep. So we're talking about security vendors. We have a lot to say about security vendors on the show, Matt. We do. And look, we're a week away from Black Hat. And I thought, what a better way than give some people some tips and pointers when they go to black hat because they're going to see hundreds of vendors on the floor you're going to see a lot of the same messages out there you're going to see a lot of the same terms out there so how do you kind of cut through the noise and really start to think about how do i evaluate what's this vendor doing should i continue to talk to them are they somebody i should should worry about or not worry about i thought it would be good for us to kind of do this you you and adrian did a webcast on this mm -hmm. i think a couple weeks ago yep. so anybody can go back and look at that webcast as well if they want to but i thought it would be good for us to give some tips and tricks before people head to vegas next week absolutely well the first thing that i typically start with is if you're going to walk the floor is to have a plan and a goal right because honestly, I think most people just kind of wander around and you're going to get lost and you're going to get caught up in the hype and you're, you're going to see cool things and you'll be like, ooh, coffee and ooh, like I can play video games. Like you can do all that on the on the show floor. But if you really are there 
to learn about security companies than in what they do and the problems they solve, you have to have a plan. And that really starts with what you want to learn about. Pick some categories that you want to learn about. Get the map from Black Hat beforehand, ideally, uh, which I do a terrible job of like the map. And I'm always like, I got to visit this vendor. We're like, where are they? And I'm, there's like a big crowd of people around the map. Print it out beforehand, right? Uh, and have a strategy. The show floors for RSA and Black Hat are so large now that you, you really need to study the map beforehand because you're just you're going to spend hours just wandering trying to find the right vendor and, and all that stuff. Yeah, especially at Black Hat. RSA has its different issues between North and South Hall. Mm -hmm. But at Black Hat, you've got the main expo hall, and then you have Innovation City. And some of the vendors you may want to go look at yep. are sitting over in Innovation City, and you need to know where Innovation City is and where they are at Innovation City if you're going to go visit those vendors. So understanding the maps of the whole show will help decide, okay, well, when I'm in the main hall, I want to go look at these vendors around these categories. Yep. When I go to Innovation City, here's the ones I want to go see over there so I can correlate between those two locations. And then last year, there was like vendors in the hallway at Black Hat. A couple. Did you yeah, a few. That? Yeah, there were a few that in weird. that main hallway. Well, I think that's very specific um, properties of, of the conference folks, but there were some vendors out there. Yeah, I'm not. I, I thought that was weird. It made it hard to navigate. Yes. And then you're going to have a ton of vendors, not even on the show floor. Yeah. So for, for people who don't understand how aspects of this work, right, is, you know, if you're going to pay for a booth, it's a, it's a big investment, right? So you'll Huge. have vendors that don't get booths. They'll rent suites or they'll hang out at the Four Seasons lobby and do meetings in the lobby. Uh, so it's always interesting to see you're going to have a lot of vendors that are there, but don't actually have booths on the floor. Mm -hmm. They're going to invite you to their suite because it's less expensive for them to, to bring you into their suite to have a meeting, for example, than, than to spend the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for those booths. Yep. Yeah. And there's different levels. Some vendors will rent space on the show floor to have meetings. And that's like, what was that like? It's like ten thousand dollars or whatever. That yeah, gets I get you on the show floor. Yeah, ten to 20, ten to fifteen is probably your entry point these yep. days. And a suite is way less expensive than that, depending yeah, on where you, what kind of suite you get. But it's still way less expensive. We know oh, we yeah. did the research. <laughs> That's why we I, have a suite. I, yeah, I know the numbers. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean that's right. If you do have a specific vendor and they're not on the show floor, it probably is in your best interest to reach out to them and say, I'd like a meeting, right? And I think that's going to be far more productive. I think you should also specify. And one thing Adrian and I talk about in our, our presentation is getting a meeting with the right person and being able to navigate. Because if you haven't worked for a vendor or aren't familiar with the different roles and responsibilities within a, any software vendor, really, um, then you might end up meeting with the wrong person, right? It, it, typically, uh, I would say you're probably not going to want to meet with sales. Maybe you do. I mean, maybe if you're a CISO and you're already down the path with someone, you do want to meet you know, with sales to talk about licensing and structuring and, and all that stuff. So if that's your goal, then yes, go meet with your, you know, the salespeople that you're dealing with in person uh, and, and, and get some stuff done. I think largely 
you want to meet with folks like um, VPs of engineering and product managers if you're technical, right? Uh, and you want some technical uh, aspect of what they do. Um, if you're not in like media, I'd say meeting with like the founders probably, I mean, maybe if you work for a really large company that could be a big deal for that company, you'll, you'll get to meet with the founder. Um, but looking at it from you're working for an enterprise, I would say, and, and Matt, weigh in on this, right? Go for VP of engineering and, and product management. Yeah, I mean, the beauty about this event and RSA is you're going to get the executives there, mm -hmm. which is great, right? That means VP of engineering, VP of product management, yep. maybe chief product officer, yep, that's a good chief one. technology officer, yep. right? They're going to be there. Uh, the CEOs are probably going to be there. Now, you may or may not want to meet with the CEO of sure. a particular company. You might. I mean, we do. CEOs... We do, but we're different. We're not it, We're yeah. not shopping for product. We're trying to learn what they do. And so we we do like to meet with the founders. And yeah. we, often we do, and it's awesome. Yeah, and so you're going to get those types of people there, mm -hmm. which is great if you really want to evaluate the product, the capabilities, the roadmap, where's the product going to go? You're going to have the right people there to get that insight if you can get the meetings with those kind of folks. Now, smaller vendors, if you're uh, like a senior member of your security team or enterprise security team in any capacity, you may get a meeting with the founder and be like, look, I've you know looked on your website, checked out some of your stuff. I think it's awesome. I'd like like a meeting because we're evaluating this technology we're really interested in in using it to protect our infrastructure right yep yeah and i think you you'll have a lot of founders out there they're they're you know they, like i said this is a big event mm. all those people are going to be there in innovation uh, city you'll typically find some of the founders at the booth pretty much at correct. all times is what i found pretty yeah pretty much around the clock mm -hmm. on the bigger booths it's harder they're typically yeah. going to be in a meeting room yeah right because for the big vendors, and we all know who they are, the executives will be there, but they're going to be in a meeting room somewhere just constantly meeting with customers. Yep. Uh, so they're probably not going to be at the booth. So if you go up to Qualys' booth, for example, or Tenable's booth mm -hmm. or Rapid7's, highly unlikely you're going to see the executive team hanging around there. Mm -hmm. you, might, you might catch them because they, they stop in, but they're not hanging out there like Innovation City where you're going to see the founders a lot more. Right. So that's the first step. Have a plan. Meet with the right people. Um, what else, Matt? Now, all right. So you have a meeting. What do you What do you want to know? Mm. Right. It, 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 you've gone through and you've identified all this stuff up front. What do you want to understand? And, and the thing I want to understand from a vendor when I talk to them is the first thing I want to understand is can they succinctly tell me the problem they're solving? Period. Can they one. articulate that to you? Because that's my first real test of a vendor is to say, if you can succinctly and quickly tell me the problem you're solving, and I, and I get it, right? And I understand it, and I've got that problem, I want to learn more. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the challenges we've seen walking around floors, Paul, over the years is that it sometimes it's not that easy for the people at the booth to really articulate the problem that the vendor is solving and so that's always my first test mm -hmm. and then now, uh, what adrian and i say really should come next i think and, and adrian really coached me on this one because i was kind of frustrated is ask them like flat out so how is it deployed and how do i use it like before we get into 
anything else. You've defined the problem. Sure, you're gonna tell me how you solve it, but let's talk about, is it an agent? Is it cloud? Is it SaaS? Is it on-premise? Um, you know, do I need a physical thing in my data center? Do I need a tap? Like, what do I need to get to get this thing and how is it deployed, right? The biggest thing is, is it an agent? A lot of, we talked about this on the webcast, a lot of vendors don't like to come out and say that it's an agent because of the negative connotations that it has. Huh? I think technology has progressed where in a lot of cases it really isn't. But then once you get that piece of the puzzle, when they go on and they start talking about what it does, how it does it, how it solves the problem, you've got the context around, right, I've got an agent, I've got some kind of app or hook into my application, whatever the case may be, I've got a network tap, now I can understand it. Yeah, and I think that's another one that's really hard for the booth staff to sometimes know, Yeah. right? How is it deployed? Mm -hmm. Because I need to know whether I need a server to load software on, yep. I need a network tap, because everybody wants a network tab. Mm -hmm. Whether I need to deploy an agent and give an outbound connection to my cloud service or my internal service, right? Yep. Um, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And, and understanding that's important. You know, we didn't get into the nuances in the last segment about how you know, some of these technologies do what, it, what they do, right? Mm -hmm. um, you take a container security company and they're using a privileged container or a kernel plugin or whatever. That's important information yeah. to know. Yep, absolutely. Uh, you look at extra hop. Is it an agent? Uh, is it a an appliance? Checkpoint came out with new appliances, right? That's that's a hardware cost, right? Mm -hmm. So those those details are important as they're talking about how they solve the problem. Because if you understand the deployment approach, then as they're explaining how they solve it, you can decide whether that's going to fit into your environment or not. Because maybe you can't get a network tap. Maybe you can't get a server to run software. Maybe your organization doesn't allow you to have a cloud service, right? These are all important things to know as they're describing the solution, how they're solving that problem, so you know whether it fits in your environment or not. Absolutely. Also, a key question is how it's priced and packaged. Not so much what it costs, right? Not what the bottom line on my invoice is going to read. That's not what we're asking. We're asking, how do I buy it? Is it per IP? Is it by bandwidth? Is it per application? Is it per user? Can you bundle those up? Is it per server, per instance? Like, how, is it subscription? What's the, you know, is it monthly? Is it yearly? That whole thing. That's important. Yeah, because you got to think about the budget side yeah. when, when you get ready to go buy. It, right? It's one Maybe. of the first questions your manager is going to ask you, right? Like, hey, I found this really cool solution, and this is the problem they solve, and we have that problem, and here's how it's deployed, and it fits in our architecture, right? And they do a great job of solving it. The next logical question your manager is going to ask is, how much does it cost? Or at the very least, like, how do we buy it, right? If we've got a million users and it's per user, you know, that could be an issue. Right. Or if it's by endpoint mm -hmm. or IP or based on appliances or a combination. Right. So think about yes. some solutions that are out there that you buy. I, I won't name the name, but let's say you buy per IP, but you also have to buy all the scanner appliances. That's yep. an additional cost. Mm -hmm. Right. Are the scanners included or not included? Are the agents included or not included in that bundle? That's important to know because it'll help you start to gauge you know, how big can this get? Because if it's, if it's by endpoint or, or by asset or, or something along that lines, and you don't have any other costs associated, 
with the purchase, then it's pretty easy for you yeah. to come up with an estimate to say, look, we've got 10,000 endpoints. Mm-hmm. I know what it, then, then you can get a price. But if it's 10,000 endpoints and I need a hundred scanner appliances because we're diversified, that's a different calculation from a budget perspective, I right? Found, that's why it's important to know those. I found, Matt, that a lot of newer companies have greatly simplified this formula of how you buy it, right? Because they're trying to compete with the larger vendors that as their software suite grows and from legacy, it's complicated mm-hmm. to purchase these larger vendors, right? But you get a newer player in the space and they're like, look, it's, it's by like the amount of logs you do per day. That's it. It's some kind of volume, right? Whether it's network volume, whether it's storage volume, it's some kind of volume, right? And that's how you buy. It's very simple. It's very simple, which is refreshing. Yeah, it's true, but it's also hard to estimate from a budget perspective. This yes. is the other new Yeah, it's the that, other side of that coin, right? Yeah. So vendors are like, well, it, it would be great if I could charge you based on throughput and retention period across number of devices or something like that, Yeah. right? Because- that's how they're caught. Co- by, by the that's way, that's how their costs who, are. Yeah, exactly. Yep. If you don't understand how this stuff works in the back end, mm-hmm. you wouldn't know this. But it really, it's about compute, bandwidth, and storage. Yeah. Right. That those are fixed costs in a cloud solution, for example. Yep. And if they could charge you based on compute, bandwidth, and storage, they would. Yeah. But for you to calculate how much compute bandwidth and storage you would take up, that's really, really hard. So you have to abstract these models in ways that people understand it and something they can equate back to themselves. And it leads to another great question, whether it's deployed on, it can be deployed on premises or and or in the cloud, right? Which of my options do I have here? I, I think many vendors have both today, right? It depends on the solution. But in the example you just gave, Matt, if my costs for the cloud solution are going to be really high because maybe I've got a large organization or whatever I'm buying is for a, like a really large bank of servers. I may have a small number of users, like Instagram is the shining example, right? They had like the smallest technology team on the planet that deployed the, one of the largest technology deployments. And so you may bring that solution on premises because we just have so many servers or instances or applications, right? Um, so you got to kind of play that game as well. But coming back with, I know it can be deployed either on-prem or in cloud or whatever the combination is. is important. Yeah, and in understanding that's important to lead into the last piece is understanding the value, mm. right? Is it operational ease, right? Can I get time to value quickly? Yep. Uh, what's it going to take to deploy? How many resources do I need? Will this reduce my resource load? and managing the solution, right? The other thing we have to really articulate as vendors and and what I think our audience needs to understand when they go to go uh, interview with some of these vendors is to really understand value. Mm -hmm. Because value is a component of buying. If I can prove to you that there is value in how I operate it or the number of resources I can, you know, allow to do other things or automation or whatever, those are those are buying criteria that allow you to move forward and say, look, this is worth the investment mm-hmm. because here's what I'm going to get at the end. And it's that value proposition that has to be well understood. And that's kind of that last component I always want to make sure I understand is, look, I love your deployment model. I love your licensing pricing model. But where is that value for me if, mm-hmm. when I deploy this? What, what can I gain from deploying your solution? Because if I can't prove that out, it's going to be really hard for me to get budget to go deploy the solution. Yep. Absolutely. Awesome. What else? 
we have those are my main ones. Yeah, we had a guide on that somewhere. Yeah, I think we have a questionnaire somewhere. It might be up on the website. I can't remember. It is somewhere. Uh, there on might the be website. a wiki post or something. Yeah, yeah, there might be a wiki um, article to it. But it kind of lists you through. The you questions. know, how do you? Yeah, problem, solution, value. De- how is it deployed? How is it licensed and, and packaged, et cetera, et cetera? Those are the main ones that I think people have to really get their heads around next week when they walk into Black Hat and they're looking for new solutions. Yep. I think largely you and I won't have time to walk the show floor at Black Hat. Unfortunately, I don't think so. We might get a lunch break where we might be able to pop down and mm. and and say hey um, to a few people. But yeah, I think we're going to be in the suite pretty much nonstop for, for two days. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing it's a nice, hopefully it's a nice suite. <laughs> we'll make it nice. And as long as the air conditioning is working, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Awesome. Well, that concludes this segment. Uh, Coming up next, Viave Charles Thompson will join us talk about threat hunting. Stay tuned. Let the team at Black Hills Information Security test your defenses. With over 10 years of experience in penetration testing, red teaming, and threat hunting, the testers at Black Hills will help you find the holes in your security before the bad guys do. The team at Black Hills cares about educating and sharing their knowledge by creating countless blogs, open source tools, and webcasts for you to learn more about the tradecraft of pen testing and red teaming. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash BHIS to join their mailing list and view the latest blogs and webcasts from Black Hills Information Security. These days, it's rarely a case of if you'll be hacked and more of a question of when. Once the attacker has passed your defenses, they cover their tracks and systematically infiltrate your network to steal information or shut your business down. You need to rethink the way security is delivered for your digitally transformed business. And there's one security solution that delivers it all, NetScout. Get visibility without borders for consistent detection, mitigation, and prevention across any network, data center, cloud, 5G, and more. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash NetScout. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. Sorry, my, my, my clicker from my teleprompter is on the other side. Uh, Security Weekly will be at Hacker Halted in Atlanta, Georgia, October 10th through the 11th. EC Council is offering our listeners a $100 off discount to attend to the two-day conference. Uh, use the discount code HH19SW when you register, or you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash Hacker Halted. I'll be doing the keynote and Jeff Mann will be speaking. So, uh, Charles Thompson is here with us. He's the Senior Director of Product Management at Viavi Solutions. And uh, Matt Alderman's here with us. And we're going to talk about threat hunting. It's interesting. We were just having a conversation with John Strand um, about uh, testing, you know, from within the network. And it's a conversation John and I had like probably 10 years ago. And we're like, we really just need to implant something in the network and then see if they detect it, see if we can get out, right? Because we know people are going to get in. And uh, when we look in the history of threat hunting, I wrote an article on like, I don't know if it was 2009 or something like that, that basically describes threat hunting without using the term threat hunting. And then you fast forward to today and we've got this wonderful term threat hunting and we're excited, right? I like this approach a lot. It's something that we've, it's something I've done in my career personally when I was at the university. I, you know, defending was hard, but I could certainly look for things that were already compromised. Um, and so it has grown into, I think, a wonderful area in information security that everyone should 
have some level of threat hunting, and that's a, I think a good uh, kind of entry point for the discussion. Uh, Charles is maybe like the different levels of threat hunting because you know you mentioned Capital One. I'm, I'm sure they had an internal threat hunting team, right? Uh, it, which probably had nothing to do with with the breach, right? But large organizations, financial organizations, do it. You know, right down to small, medium businesses can do some level of threat hunting, correct? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think what you see is a lot of security professionals take sort of a passive approach to security, right? They kind of configure their environment and they kind of lock the doors and and bar the windows and they say, you know, we're pretty much set at this point. We're not going to really be active I- anymore. And so, you know, threat hunting really comes in as a as a way to be testing the the perimeter, but also the 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 intranet environments to be able to understand what is actually vulnerable. You know, the Capital One is is a great case of that, right? Uh, you know, the news is reporting this is a misconfigured firewall that allowed an employee to be able to access a data store that had all this information on it. Well, somebody thought they'd set that firewall up, right? And somebody thought that, you know, their things were set. So, you know, even when you get into how often people are doing pen testing, mm-hmm. it seems like it's incredibly rare. And, you know, even if you are doing pen testing, so often you're using active technologies, right? You're not really understanding what's connected and who's communicating all your understanding is, well, can I get you know through A or through B? Um, so it's a it's a very interesting space where I think one size definitely doesn't fit all, but you know some level of active participation and threat hunting activities and those types of things is critical to a, a security strategy, and you know, we just don't see anywhere near enough of it, in my opinion. You know, it's interesting. We traditionally have talked about detection, prevention, and reaction. Threat hunting kind of fits in between some of those, <laughs> some of those layers. Now that you describe it, like I really do think it, because I mean, detection is like, what are you detecting? You're detecting the vulnerability, the exposure, the misconfiguration, the malware itself, the artifacts from the malware, or just completely post breach. You're you're detecting, doing incident response, right? Threat hunting kind of is right. You're right, Charles. It's that testing in between those different phases to see, am I? It, can I detect it, right? If I put a threat in my environment, me, myself, can I detect it? Which speaks a little bit to breach simulation, but is an aspect of threat hunting, right? And then am I, can I actually protect it? Are my protections working? And then if I can get by all of that stuff, does someone see it and how do they react to it? Or the other aspect of threat hunting is someone's bypassed everything. They're inside of our network and I got to go find them before even more bad things happen, right? Yeah, and that and that's one of the biggest areas, right? Is is you know so many organizations believe that there's some level of breach that's already occurred. They they believe they're already vulnerable to something that's that's happening right under their noses. They they're just not aware of it. You know, a lot of security technologies today depend on things like uh, uh, you know normalized baselines and those types of things. And smart attackers are gonna mm-hmm. are gonna make sure that they they slide under the radar. They don't set off the alarms. They don't you know deviate baselines that create triggers and create investigations. And so. It's very hard to find the more sophisticated attackers, the ones that we're really, really concerned about. And active threat hunting allows you to be able to dig in and, and look for anomalies that might not be discovered by uh, you know, analytics in some of the systems that we have today. Not to say that those aren't getting better and better and better, but so many of the security technologies that are in place today are highly, highly dependent on baseline deviation as their sole means of understanding you know, what's happening within the environment. And you can trickle traffic and slowly over time deviate those baselines mm-hmm. or you know run so far under the radar that you don't even show up uh, with any baseline deviation I- I whatsoever um and you know a couple hundred bytes here and there can wreak havoc on a network if, yep. if it's done correctly but you know most systems aren't going to alert you to those types of things it's been a great evolution of tools that have allowed us to do this kind of thing because when i think back to when i was doing it in early 2000s 
I could find the automated stuff, right? I mean, back then we used to use the term script kitty, right? We could find largely that stuff that was automated. And that was really the, the essence of our threat hunting. If an attacker did something more sophisticated, it took us much longer, if ever, to catch that particular attacker. Now with the analytics tools that we have, I think we're we're so much better poised. When I, I interview folks like you, Charles, and others that are, have solutions, I'm like, I really wish I had that stuff when I was, you know, in the, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and so I think it's very encouraging that we've progressed to this point. Yeah, there is a lot of great tech out there, and it's just a matter of taking advantage of it and and being more, you know, active in the process. Um, again, of, of of looking for anomalous behavior within the environment, or looking for those things that stand out that could be early indicators of something more widespread or or broader within the environment. And uh, you know, at some point, uh, you know, here I'll I'll actually turn on my screen share mm. and and show you a couple different views. But you know, one of the interesting things is if you do have, you know, let's just say some some level of malware within the environment that's not getting picked up because you know you're you're very early in the process it's, it's not being flagged by the the common uh, signatures and those types of things being able to understand who's talking to whom and how much data is being transferred but you know even in some of the views being able to understand who's being actively queried but who's actually responding back um yep. so i'll pull that up here in just a second as we as we sure. talk through this matt did you have comments yeah yeah i i had a you know i think part of this is we've we've had our, our tools were kind of point-in-time tools. Mm -hmm. They were point-solution tools. And and one of the challenges I think we've had, which I think technology has helped us address, right, is the ability to correlate across multiple data sources to bring bigger data analytics into the equation. And now we can start to look for some of these anomalies through some automation that we didn't have before. Uh, but you still see vendors that are kind of point-in-time solutions, right? And I, I kind of go back to a term... Paul, you and I know pretty well is this concept of continuous monitoring mm -hmm. to Charles's point, right? I have a configuration baseline. That's what I expect the environment to be running as, but it drifts over time. How do I identify that configuration drift? If I'm not doing something on a more regular basis, I'm not going to catch that configuration drift, which now opens up a hole into my network to allow data to come out, right? And so the concept of continuous monitoring has always been intriguing. The question is to Charles, that I want to get some comments from Charles and maybe some, some vision on this, is how do you actively do that, though? How do you effectively do monitoring on a more continuous basis instead of a point-in-time mm. scan or validation of your baselines? Because I think that's where we fall down in between those windows. Yeah. So, I, you know, what I see a lot of organizations starting to adopt is the concept of profiling within their own environment, right? Being able to lock a known good configuration of a device type. Say, for example, set a signature that says, this is a printer. This is how a printer should behave within the environment. Lock that configuration. It's not a baseline. It's actually a static definition. And then be able to say, alert me when there's any deviations to that, right? When, when a printer stops acting like a printer, Suddenly, a device that is a printer has been identified as a printer is in the is in the in the category of a printer. Suddenly, is hosting you know a, a web server. Or suddenly, is hosting FTP or is suddenly you know spewing out large volumes of data that it doesn't it doesn't need to be or shouldn't be. Um, those are you know great indications, right? Because as an intelligent attacker, I'm going to leverage the resources that exist within your infrastructure to be able to to carry out my attack and 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 probe from within and so on. So. Active profiling and setting signatures for known good environmental elements 
and then saying, watch for deviation on these elements. It's not just a baseline that can be easily deviated over time, and it's not volumetric information. It's actually saying, this is a device type of, of type and kind. It should be having these conversations to these subnets, you know, so on and so forth. And then when that changes, let me know about it. Now, you know, it's always a delicate balance, right? It, you can't spend all your time over configuring and run into a situation where every alarm that trips off, you just go, yeah, yeah, that's because nobody's updated the profile. You know, right, just ignore right. it. We, we ignore all the red on the screen all the time. At the same time, if you're not doing that, then you're completely reliant on, you know, deviation-based analysis or blacklists, you know, that are, that are all based on either known normal patterns and volumetric information, which can be deviated over time, or you know, blacklist information and signature-based analysis, which if I'm a savvy attacker, right, I'm kind of I'm kind of ahead of the pack on that on that stuff. And I'm not necessarily using the known stuff that's going to get caught by the blacklists and, and the malware signatures and those types of things. So Charles, you've done some of these exercises for for customers, some threat hunts. Yeah, yeah. We so so we we've engaged with customers and done some threat hunting with them. Um, you know, and a lot of times it comes down to going into their environment and saying, okay, you know, what do we what do you know about your environment? Well, you know, we did a scan of our environment. We've got fifty one devices. All right. Well, leveraging passive network based observations, I can tell you, you've actually got fifty five devices on your mm -hmm. network. No, no, we've got fifty one. No, you've got fifty five. These other four devices, they just didn't reply to your active, uh, you know, sweeping technologies. Because they're, let's just say, ATMs. ATMs are designed, you know, by default to, to not respond back to inbound requests. So using passive observation technologies, I can tell you how many devices you've got. Then who are they communicating with? Well, they're communicating with three different applications. No, no, it's only two. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you from the network perspective, it's actually three, right? So when you start to get into those kind of conversations, it's amazing how much deviation from expectation actually yeah. exists within the environment. And it's so that you, discovery 101 yeah, challenge that yeah. everybody has, right? Know I what mean, you have. Everybody know what you have. And everybody, if they if they think they have 51, you really have 55 and it's two apps versus three apps or whatever. Right there's a gap in your, in your visibility to even put the right protections in place. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have a blueprint of, of what the expectation is, then how in the world can you say, well, I've got my firewalls configured appropriately and I've got my yeah. ACLs set up that things aren't crossing boundaries that they shouldn't. You know, you run into it all the time where customers say, uh, you know, this can't talk to that. Well, you know, there's there's an average of five conversations a day representing, you know, a couple hundred gig worth of traffic of this talking to that. I, I swear it's happening, right? It's it's actually network-based communication. So we, we can observe it from that perspective. Um, but, you know, it, it, and it turns out that somebody changed something once, opened something up, and then, you know, forgot to close it or whatever. But, be, but if you're not an active, if you're not actively looking at the environment and you're not doing threat hunting, you're not doing just active profiling of the environment, you're oblivious to all those things. And so, Charles, this this is what your solution does, right? So you take a network tap and you do some passive analysis of the traffic to get a blueprint, essentially. Yeah, we use both packet-based information and flow-based information. So mm -hmm. it's, it's all wired data, right? It's all being sourced and being brought into the portfolio and then identifying, you know, what's talking to what, what's connected, where it's connected uh, as, as a way of kind of like setting a baseline, right? Setting a, setting an expectation standard. And then those can be locked as this is known good. Watch for, you know, watch for deviations from known good. They can be dynamic, so they can drift over time, but we've you know, kind of talked about what some of the challenges are when it comes to that. And then you can actually go in and set up, you know, complex whitelists and profiles and so forth. So yeah, leveraging, you know, information that comes from the infrastructure itself. And then obviously the, the wire data, the packets that are traversing the infrastructure, that's exactly what our tool designed to do 
And I like that because it's a really abstract layer. I, I find so many solutions get too granular about like that's bad behavior and it's very, very specific technique on Windows or whatever, right? But the result of some of those attacks is behavior, right? That I'm impersonating a user or I've compromised some device and I'm doing something different with it than it normally does. With this solution, you can detect attacks in a more generalized sense rather than being very specific on, yeah, they're executing PowerShell on Windows, right? Yeah, absolutely. It can be very, very broad or very, very targeted. You know, if you've got a host of interest that you want to be able to drill in on, it's very easy to do that. I'll just crank up my share here for those yeah. that are uh, going to be seeing this on the uh, on the webcast. Yes. And if you go to securityweekly.com forward slash Viavi, we're going to post the video uh, of this segment here. So if you're listening, uh, you can check in and see it. And then Charles, I know you you and your team are working on um, some cheat sheets or something with uh, with threat hunting. So those resources will become available. Yeah, we're pretty excited about that. So we're working with some industry uh, folks that are, are uh, pretty active and, and, and doing some pretty interesting and, and I would say innovative things in terms of threat hunting and how they're leveraging these types of technologies. So we're pretty excited about uh, making some of that content available. Awesome. But what we're looking at on the screen here is kind of, you know, your traditional war game scenario, right? Which is we're, we're watching for anomalous behavior and that that is blacklist activity. But it's also, you know, your, your sin fin activity and it's any deviations from our locked profiles, right? Mm -hmm. So I can come in here and I can easily say, do I have anything behaving abnormally from any perspective, whether it's, you know, known blacklist, malware, signature-based detection, whatever it might be. If I come into an event category here, you know, I'll just grab one that's pretty easy here, sin port sweeping. Well, let me clear out of that. In just a second, I think it refreshed on me just as I was clicking on it. Yeah, there we go. Perfect. So I can come in here and I can see, you know, exactly who's talking to whom. And when I drill in on this and do a search against the, the known bad actor, right, the, the IP address, what this actually builds out for me is a conversation tree, right, which is a great way to be able to easily visualize who's talking to whom. Now, a key element of this is where are we observing that communication from? This list yeah. along the left-hand side here is actually the flow sources. So it could be the router, it could be the firewall, uh, it could be you know various different pieces of infrastructure that are reporting out what they're witnessing, and then being able to build out the conversation tree to be able to see the host of interest, you know, the, the the target known bad actor, what applications they're trying to communicate across, who they're communicating out with, and who's responding back to them. So this is really the, the key bit here, right? Is this known bad actor had one target in mind, right? That's the blue line across the top where the unidirectional flow is being seen from the known bad actor out to, you know, in this case, it's, it's uh, this IP address 242 within our environment. And I can see here on the green, 242 actually responding back. So that's concerning, right? That's an indication that that host, you know, we know it shouldn't be responding back to a known bad actor using a known malware mm -hmm. signature or known blacklist activity, or we just know that the profile that we've defined for that subnet or that device type shouldn't be responding back to this type of request, but it is. Yeah. And when I hover on it here, you can see it's three kilobytes worth of data, right? That says click for forensics of three KB. I mean, that's not going to deviate a baseline. That's not going to show up. You know, a smart attacker can do a lot with three KB worth sure. of worth of activity for back from a host. Yeah, and what I like too is I, I think all of us that have defended networks before have that list in our heads or programmatically throughout the environment that are like these things should never be exposed to the internet, right? I mean, that's the big one is if it's exposed to the internet or not. This seems like a great solution to tell me those things we might have missed, those configurations that someone may have changed to say 
by the way, now this app is exposed to the internet. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I would expect that a known bad actor is going to be trying to, to reach into our environment or, 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 or some location within our environment and, and make some activities. But what I would expect is that my hosts are not able to respond back out. So, right, you know, if we look too. at another yep. one here, this this port sweep, and we search against that that known bad actor. Here I've got, you know, the, the known bad actor here talking to 107 IP addresses, right? So ingress of 107, egress of eight, which mm -hmm. me effectively means that I've got eight hosts that are not doing what they should be doing, which is not responding to this. Now that could be a misconfigured firewall, as is, you know, what, what's being reported in the in the uh, yeah. Capital One case, or it could be that those eight hosts are already infected with with the malware. And so I can literally track that down and over time do a time-based analysis to get all the way back to patient zero and understand the spread of this within our environment. And that's where we get into that remediation phase of being able to understand how widespread the, the attack was, what was compromised, what was exfiltrated, and so on. But it all starts with actively participating in threat hunting activities to figure out that an issue exists. Well, yeah, and we just talked about phoning home in the one of the previous segments, and right. this solution absolutely addresses that issue. It's how do you know what's phoning home? And this isn't necessarily an attacker all the time. Maybe this is some software you've put on your domain controller or whatever that's phoning home to China. There was an example of like a webcam, and they discovered it was phoning home to China. Charles, sounds like your solution is perfectly poised to be able to tell you what's phoning home and yeah, if it absolutely. was successful. Yeah. What applications are, are phoning home, how they're phoning home, uh, the path that's being taken, you know, what you can even drill in and be able to get, you know, flow codes out of the firewalls to see what which ACLs allowing that communication to occur when yep. in theory it should be blocked and it's and it's not. Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. Um, so tell us about um, like a, a use case where you've gone in and, and put this solution in a customer uh, environment. Yeah, so there was a, a financial organization that we were working with uh, uh, over in in uh, the UK, and in their environment, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier. It was basically they they knew they had penetration testing that needed to happen within their environment. They were bringing in a third party, but before that happened, they wanted to kind of understand what their environment looked like. They wanted to be poised and ready to answer the questions from the auditors when when they came in. So exactly as, as described earlier, right? We went into a, a subnet. We were told, we, don't worry, we've, we've already done all of our active scanning. There's 51 devices. Well, actually, there was 55, right? Well, that can't be. There's 51. Well, here's the results from my, from my active scan test. Well, you know, these four devices, which turned out to be ATMs, didn't respond back to your active scan test, right? So being able to understand what was connected, then being able to understand where those devices were connected and be able to say, Okay, so you've only got you know one VLAN. No, 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 no. The ATMs are segmented. They're on a separate VLAN, they're, they're, but they're not, right? So being uh, able to see a conversation right. map, a connection map is showing us that these ATMs are in fact not segmented the way you believe they are. So you know, being able to go in and just say, wow, there are a lot of risks here within this environment is, is so telling, right? And then what we were able to do with that account was actually build out these conversation trees that you see here, as well as connection trees to be able to say, here's how these devices communicate. Here's what you know is dependent upon one another. And that was useful for two reasons. One, it allowed them to understand what was potentially misconfigured or needed to be reconfigured in their environment to be able to put up the appropriate firewalls and set up the appropriate rules and you know put the appropriate prevention in place. But secondarily, as they were in the process of migrating some of their core technology out to a cloud-based environment, they now understood what needed to move in tandem and how it needed to move and mm. what needed to, to be enabled so that security didn't get a black eye when things moved and either they opened it up too much 
which would have allowed you know potential risks to occur or locked it down too tightly such that the application stopped working. So it was kind of like a twofold uh, event where you were doing some active threat hunting and understanding where your vulnerabilities existed, but then you were leveraging that same information for your cloud migration strategy to ensure that security was well-informed and, and that the, the plan was, was well-structured, which unfortunately is a lot of times an afterthought when you're doing some of these uh, uh, migrations. And, and doing this w without such a tool or solution takes a really long time. Like I've been there, right? If you're trying to figure out what's talking to what, it's pretty time consuming. You find your customers uh, save a lot of time. Oh, it's massive, massive. I mean, you know, even some of the, the visualization technologies, like, you know, what you're seeing here on the, the, the right-hand side of the screen, right? Being able to just click on a conversation and say, you know, here's the here's the, the, the destination IP that was, you know, talking back to, to the host. Just being able to visualize it like that mm -hmm. versus having to go through PCAPs and three pane decodes and try and create conversation trees out of that and rows and rows of data. I mean, even just a, a good visualization of this information can substantively reduce the time that it takes to, to understand what's happening within the environment. So yeah, it's a huge time saver in, in being able to, to know what's happening. And, you know, with some of these visualizations, it's very easy to see X is talking to Y, you know, a lot of times that gets lost in the clutter of a, you mm -hmm. know, a, a 28,000 row spreadsheet right. of, of, of information, but being able to visualize it and see it very quickly, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for us to be firing this up after, you know, being running in a customer's environment for 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah. You show them information on the screen and suddenly three of the engineers kind of look at each other and suddenly walk out of the room because they've yeah. seen something on the screen. They understand exactly what's happening and they're going to go resolve problems in real time. I mean, that's not an uncommon occurrence. It's a great, yeah, it's a great use case for time to value, uh, for sure, we were just talking about that on, on the previous segment. Uh, it, you know, querying the vendors for what's my time to value, and I love the solutions that you get it in. And 15 minutes later, engineers are running out of the room to go fix things. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's great in, to see. In a highly diverse environment, in the complexity that's getting introduced constantly with these new technologies, this is a big challenge. Just this level of visibility is hard to get and understand because. Nobody knows where half of their stuff is sometimes, yeah. and, and this really helps. Well, especially yeah, in your, especially. your ATM example, a retail chain, right, where you've got 30, 40, 50, 100 different, you know, branch offices or stores or whatever, or, you know, banks, branch offices. This yeah. is extremely and, and legacy applications, right, mm -hmm. that are still running in largely mainframe environments. And people are going, I don't know. The folks that built this stuff haven't been here for the last yeah. 10 or 12 years. It runs. It works. We're scared to move it. We're scared to mess with it too much. But at the same time, we need to apply data center security to this infrastructure. So we got to know how this stuff is yeah. actually functioning, how it's actually working before we can really start to lock it down. You know, PCI DSS compliance or HIPAA compliance or whatever it is is saying we need to tighten our security but we don't understand how this stuff works. So how are we supposed to do that, right? This kind of technology can really inform an organization and allow them to begin on those initiatives, whether it's a cloud migration or a, mm -hmm. a, a more secure uh, data center or infrastructure uh, initiative. You know, having visibility and having these types of insights are what enables those business objectives. And, and I think something I want to point out here a little bit, I know we're talking about threat hunting, but there's a lot of other value that, that these solutions bring to the table. And we just talked about it, visibility, 
right? Understanding scope, understanding communications. Now, granted, you can use it for a lot of additional things, but you're solving some of the basic fundamentals that I think a lot of people struggle with still today, Charles, is I just, I don't know what's there. I don't know what's communicating. Now that I have that, now I can continue to mature what I do and actively looking for threats in my environment because now I have a really good solid picture of what's in my environment. It's a, it's a great point. I mean, you know, our roots are kind of in the remediation phase, right? After the event has occurred, mm -hmm. what we've seen are more and more and more use cases where threat hunting and active participation in understanding what's occurring is a, a common use case for our technology. So you're absolutely right. You know, kind of, we're talking kind of on, on the active threat hunting piece, but there's so many other use cases when it comes to remediation. And you know, we all know it's not an if, it's a when uh, that, that an organization will suffer a breach or, or be subject to some type of an attack. And so what do you do once that occurs? How do you understand how widespread it was? How do you understand what was exfiltrated? How do you understand you know, what, what your requirements are at this point now that something has, has taken place? And so, yeah, there's, there's so many different applications of this type of technology and visibility enables, enables so much. And, you know, the cool thing is that because this is all coming from an infrastructure or network perspective, it's very, very difficult for even a savvy attacker to cover their tracks and, and, and hide from some of this stuff, right? A savvy attacker is going to, you know, clear syslogs and, and, and do a lot of things to try and cover their tracks. But it's very hard when you've got, you know, 24-7 capture device recording information or, or live flows that are happening every 15 seconds and being recorded to, to go back and kind of cover those tracks and, and, uh, and really scrub out that infrastructure information. So point being, these records and this insight is here and available either to the organization who could leverage it directly or when you when it comes time to, to bring in a third party organization and say, you know, we need some help. We need to bring in some, some real hardcore experts because we have suffered a breach. And here's the here's all the the gold that we have for you in terms of what's connected, what's communicating, what's been happening ever since this this uh, uh, event occurred. Charles, yeah, um, as, as, as sorry, they say, ahead. the network never lies. That's it. <laughs> uh, so, a couple of points are: no, is Viavi? Are you exhibiting at Black Hat? Will you be at Black Hat? Yeah, it's a good question. I uh, I know that we we've got a, a presence at Black Hat. I don't know that we're actually actively exhibiting, but I know that we'll have a, a presence at Black Hat. Okay, so if you're interested, reach out, uh, set up a meeting as we talked about in our previous segment. Um, and also the, the interface you showed us, you've got a new release coming up uh, around Black Hat time. Yeah, so so actually the the interface that I just showed, that release dropped uh, last week and we've got okay. a, another uh, pretty sizable release that ties in more threat hunting capability, advances our profiling functions and allows more direct correlation between uh, our flow content and our packet content. And that's going to be happening in the early September timeframe. So pretty exciting, you know, a lot of forward momentum on this all coming directly from, from customer feedback as they they're finding more and more interesting use cases for this technology. That's fantastic. So make sure you check out Charles, anything else you want to share with our audience? No, I think this was great. You know, I appreciate the time and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about, you know, actively participating in, in a security posture. I think it's it's one of the most interesting topics. It's obviously something that I've got some passion around. And I've seen so many people make such great strides in the past just couple of years with really actively uh, working within their environment that I uh, appreciate the opportunity to get the word out and, and would welcome any future conversations or uh, uh, questions from the audience. That's awesome. I uh, encourage our audience to visit securityweekly.com forward slash Viavi. Uh, we'll post a video here, any additional materials. Uh, and if you're interested, you can uh, sign up a form, uh, and get a demo and meet with them at Black Hat. So Charles, thank you so much. Thanks very much. Appreciate you having me. 
And that will conclude this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. Thanks, everyone, for listening and watching.